from Immersive Labs, this is Cyber Humanity. Hello everyone, I'm your host Chris Bass, joined once again by malware fiddler Kev Breen. Hi. Product meddler Paul Bentham. Hello. And finally, puppy wrangler Max Vetter. The puppy <laughs> has arrived, everyone. Has so, you know, arrived. we saw the puppy earlier and it's incredibly cute. It's very um, cute. I'm sure it's going to have its own Instagram account and everything very soon. I'm sure. I'm more of a cat person. Oh, I think that, God. Paul, I think that's been established. <laughs> In these podcasts, we try to look at cybersecurity from a human point of view social engineering, hacker motivation, cyber crises, and more. And they essentially come in two flavors either us ranting about themes close to the hearts of security types, and we haven't done one of those for a while, so we probably should again soon, or us chatting about threat and security stuff from recent weeks. And this episode is one of those so where are we going to start because it has been a jam-packed week to say the least we had so much stuff that we could have talked about um but the first thing we're going to talk about is honda it's been in the news um honda uh, the report initially was they had been the victim of a cyber attack and it seemed that systems were down and not available and text messages were flying around um and now it seems that the suggestion is that it's ransomware um, and also, it, it seems like we have been able to say which type of ransomware it is, despite the fact that Honda have not confirmed anything. So I'm kind of interested to know how that happened, how research is suddenly being able to give to a- attribute this when Honda have given no information. Yeah, so Honda came out and said um, they're offline, they're having difficulties. And I think their latest is they still haven't confirmed exactly what it was. They're still just saying... Uh, there's been a technical incident and they're dealing with it. And then, like you said, we saw um, somebody jump into Twitter and say that um, that what they've been hit with is snake ransomware. And the way they did this is they looked at VirusTotal. Uh, they found that a sample of malware, or so specifically snake ransomware, had been uploaded to VirusTotal uh, by a user in Japan, uh, and that ransomware was specifically targeted to Honda. So when you execute that malware, the malware says, am I in a Honda internal uh, domain? And if the answer is yes, it infects. If the answer is no, it does not and shuts itself down. So the sample that arrives is, uh, isn't changed by like where it is or when it executes it, it what you're saying is that the sample that's been submitted was created or the malware itself was created to specifically target honda it feels like uh very specifically those domains um and there's an ip check in there as well so yes that is um very specifically targeted. to them now we don't know if it is this attack that's happening we don't know if this is something else uh, all we know is that at about the same time honda went offline this file was uploaded and it was uh, it was manually uploaded via the website by a user that was not signed in from the country of japan uh virus total gives us that much information at least is that what snakes like kev is that um malware like for like a malware as a service um ransomware as a service type thing where you configure it for the your target or is is somebody actually coded this specifically to target honda 
A bit of both. Um, it's written in Go, so if you've got access to the source code, like it's fairly easy to put those kind of checks in place. Uh, we have seen other variants of Snake do this, but we also see Snake that's completely non non-discriminate. Uh, it will just go and doesn't care to do those checks. So, bit of both. I suppose what's made the story interesting is, like you say, that it's to do with the timing. It's the fact that the attack happened and then the sample appears on virus total in the same kind of time frame um and the sample is referencing uh is referencing honda i am assuming that the information um or the ip range or the domain names or whatever it, it was that were in that sample they would be public knowledge or uh yeah. so anyone could find that out uh, you can. Uh, so Virus Total operates in a couple of different ways. Uh, there's a free version. Uh, anybody can just go and upload and, and view some basic information on it. Uh, if you have a paid account, which a lot of organizations and security researchers have access to, uh, then we can see more, including we have the ability to download those files as well. So uh, I actually have a copy of this malware, uh, which we've played with in, in a lab environment. Outside of the technical stuff, um, interesting that we're seeing it now. We're now seeing the standard response to, you know, we've been the victim of a cyber attack and we have to say something in the uh, in the public domain. There is no current evidence of loss of personally identifiable information, <laughs> which we all know now means we've no idea. Absolutely what's nothing. Like uh, it, it, it means that it it could have or it couldn't. Like no current evidence is basically like saying we don't know what we don't know. What we do know about the snake, uh, their operators, is that they don't, uh, they haven't historically used the same methodologies. They're not like um, Revil and things like that, where they go in deliberately, like exfiltrating documents. Uh, they don't always operate the same way. So it is possible that nothing's been stolen. It is just a, a targeted ransomware attack. Yeah, so I think while it may be that as things stand at the moment, Snake is not one of those ransomware variants that generally has been a, a kind of this sort of combi, like info stealer, um, you know, data breacher, um, you know, in, in combination with ransomware, we are definitely seeing that um, that approach become more popular. And we're actually now starting to see these, um, uh, these uh, different types of ransomware almost band together to create these uh to create syndicates just recently in the news the um you know maze um uh, ransomware you know has has been has added other ransomwares i think it was ragnarokka and maybe another one to its kind of group almost creating like a you know a syndicate or a cartel and their mo like their whole approach is about um both you know, steal information and encrypt and use those two levers to pull. I would be extremely surprised. I mean, I don't know. You guys tell me what, what you think, but it feels to me like why go about being so targeted, you know, to a particular company right down to domains and IPs if you're not interested in the data that that company holds? Yeah, it's when you put in that much effort. If you've if you've got those domains, you must know something about their internals, which means you must have done some recon or got something from somewhere. So, ransomware is a, a final act. We know that, like for people like Honda, what's most important to them is their IP. So, if I was an attacker with that much internal potential access, I'd be looking to get IP rather than just dropping ransomware. But that's attacker motivations. Yeah, and it's, it's um, a lot more advanced, right? To to have to get in, exploit data, and then put ransomware 
is just way way above just trashing with ransomware we don't know what the vector was it could have been email it could have been rdp brute force like we honestly don't know we still can't i saw some stuff on twitter yeah the way they were showing people with screenshots of their uh, honda commercial uh, terminals showing rdp terminals exposed to the internet <laughs> amazing uh nothing new we see it all the time yeah that's what happened in travelix isn't it as soon as the hack happens all the security companies all the security people go oh yeah i sent them loads of vulnerabilities last week <laughs> or the week before the week before that the Malwarebytes uh, blog on this is quite interesting because it's it's listing both the Honda and a uh, energy distributor in the uh, Buenos Aires in Argentina as uh, both as victims and speculating that Snake is more targeted at industrial control systems companies. So I wonder whether Snake, uh, Kev, I maybe I don't know if you've got a view on this, but whether Snake is starting to look at more ICS systems and um, and other. Uh, manufacturing industries and that's why this is also quite interesting at the minute yeah so snake has ransomware in its ransomware operations is no different to some of the others like it does proper implementation uses rsa all that good stuff but like you said one of the interesting things that it does uh, is it has the ability to shut down ics systems uh, so it it can recognize if there are ics processes running uh, and can target those processes so yeah that 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 kind of target for this kind of operator absolutely makes sense. Uh, let's just briefly talk about the name, which is terrible. I mean, it's a four for me. It's pretty, it, well, in fact, it's probably a two. It's rubbish. No, it's get, like a, a really dangerous worm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the name actually comes from Ekans. Uh, so E-K-A-N-S, which is stake reversed, uh, is the uh, appears in every encrypted file. So it's a file marker inside all infected files so you can see where data and stuff starts so there is a tag the malware authors put in it's not even called snake then it's called ecan yeah but someone obviously Ecans, noticed yeah. that it's snake backwards <laughs> someone noticed that it's snake backwards and thought that's that's easier they're really clever ecans is a pokemon though so the pokemon uh, name for pokemon. sounds more I told you, they're always like pokemons uh... or manga characters or some crap like that <laughs> two it's a two it's lame anyway uh, the, uh it's not very I, what is interesting though is that we are saying that you can upload stuff to virus total you know samples of um, malware for anyone to be able to see um and actually what we don't know is what potentially um, identifiable data could be inside that sample. So in this case, um, someone else has gone and done the recon, but the reality is now that anyone looking in virus total at a sample with this specific information about Honda could also target them as well, right? Like that, that, that information has now been made available that was not available before. Yes. The one thing I would say is that in order to download the samples and to see the actual file contents, you do need a paid account and they're not the cheapest of things in the world. Um, so organizations can pay for this level of access. And like I said, researchers um, in communities get granted uh, a higher degree of access. Um, but we've, we've seen this before. Uh, when I was in the MOD, we used to uh, look for, for emails being submitted to VirusTotal, not from uh, MOD users, but uh, when we emailed out to... Um, to other companies uh, their automated mail scanning systems would sometimes upload samples uh, to virus total including full copies of the email body and the attachments um, if it triggered any things um, in other companies i've worked for we've seen 
users uh, and automated scanners where that invoice.pdf looks a bit weird. So I'm just going to upload it to VirusTotal because upload is free. Uh, anybody can do it, uh, not realizing they're leaking. So anyone with a account can then download those invoices and emails? Uh, if you've got a paid account and you know what to look for, absolutely. Seems a bit scary. And and then do you think uh, someone from Honda uploaded it? What What's the likelihood of... So I've... I'm looking at the sample that's been uploaded to VirusTotal. And VirusTotal don't reveal all the information. But what we do know is that at uh, 0136 uh, hours on the 8th of June, a file named nmon.exe was uploaded to VirusTotal uh, from the country of Japan, and it was submitted using the web interface by a user that was not signed in. So somebody in Spain using the API has also uploaded that sample. Uh, looking at the relationships, there are also malwaredbinfected.rar, newfolder.rar. Um, they also contain that sample inside them, uh, and they've also been uploaded to VirusTotal. VirusTotal has a wealth of information. It does a lot of correlations. So, yes, like people should be aware of uh, uploading stuff. This is just a wider issue, isn't it? I mean, most I presume most virus scanners these days are cloud. Uh, so you're uploading this, uploading samples to the cloud when you, something new comes in when it's doing its heuristic analysis. This is a challenge. Um, I think it was the UK government that had with Kaspersky. So like you're running uh, Kaspersky, you've basically got malware on your machine. If you if you don't trust the uh, virus uh, security company, the virus scanning security company, then you've got malware on your device that's uploading samples to, in this case, Kaspersky. And the UK government said, well, I'm not really sure that's a good <laughs> idea because you're sending them sensitive documents. It's just the same with virus total. If, you, if your screening policy is to, uh, if it looks suspicious, just send it to virus total to get a uh, review of whether it's malware or not then like you're sending sensitive data to virus total like well like pay for it i so said the, the difference there is that uh sophos and other AV vendors they're tightly controlled accessed uh virus total is anybody who wants to pay for an account can access that uh yeah, not to put you get what you pay for absolutely now not to put people off uploading uh, samples the virus total but if you want to do a check the best thing to do uh md5 it get a hash of it and then search for the hash rather than just uploading the sample um can tell you whether it's been seen before or not and is is that would you recommend if you were working at honda that they would have uploaded these things or is that a bad because now we have loads of information we didn't have before honda might not be very happy about that um so it's a, it's always a tough decision, and this would be something that would be made by, we don't know whether it was an analyst or whether it was just some user who found it. If you're in the middle of a dark time, like this is early hours of the morning, I don't know what the time would have been in Japan. Like, if you want to get a very quick, uh, I need to know what this malware is doing, and you're not concerned about uh, if that file may contain sensitive data, then VirusTotal's a, a good way of doing that. Um, I trust VirusTotal more than something like AnyRun. So AnyRun is another malware service that does something very, very similar. That's completely public. Like anybody can register an account and download it, like no price required. There is a large financial boundary to gaining access to, to VirusTotal. So it's a it's a risk versus reward. If you need a very quick answer uh, on what this thing is doing and you don't have a malware analysis environment, maybe that's a good option for you. But you should have some kind of policy in place that determines whether that's an acceptable risk for your company to take or not. We've seen leaked 
um, images that's, you know, from, um, you know, their internal alert system via text message and stuff that say this is ransomware. And it's back to that same old thing. If this is a ransomware that affects and they have made clear that it affects customer service and the financial services elements of their business, you know what I'm going to say? Why aren't they telling those people like at minimum if you use your password for Honda for something else, then we would strongly recommend that you change it in order to protect your data whilst there is no indication that any data has been lost at this stage. I just don't understand why that's so difficult to do. Well, that's NCSE's guidance these days, isn't it? Password changes should only be done if you believe or there has been a compromise. It's exactly the kind of trigger that should set one of these off. But I suppose this is where they're covering themselves by saying, uh, but we don't know that there's been any data loss. So as long as we, as long as there's no evidence of it, you know, we're not going to ask anyone to change their password. Whilst the reality is there could be a whole list of usernames and passwords that are now now, you know, in, in the hands of, um, you know, less than savoury um, threat actors. It's also very unlikely that we're going to find anything out um, because I don't imagine Honda are going to want to rush out and give all the gory details of what happened. Um, so unless it's the attacker is actually going to do that for us, we're unlikely to find much more than a basic root cause analysis, I think. And if it's anything like these other ransom, you know, data ransomware um things that happen like with travelex uh, the hackers will have had that information for a long time already you know it's not like they activate their ransomware as soon as they they pull the data out and start looking at it they, they might have been in that network for a long time and and then uh, so it's it were already way behind i think there should be there should be laws about completely sharing the blow-by-blow coverage of everything that's happening during an incident because i really want to watch it and understand what's going on <laughs> you want to say yeah, it's a, morbid you curiosity. Just like a live tweet feed and live tweets of like, yeah <laughs> yeah and I don't, it's not because i care about personal data and it's not because i really you know i really like honda as a company i think they're you know an amazing uh manufacturer etc etc but I just wanted that was cool. Is this you and is this you and I, you and I our TV show idea? Ooh. Like a, uh, it's like the Crystal Maze, but it's a cyber attack. Basically, <laughs> I'm coming out. I'm coming out. <laughs> Not like that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, well, this uh, changed tone. No, what I was going to say in in the police when there wasn't a a, a incident, and I'd, I'd been in a number that that you know you had gold gold silver and, and bronze uh, activated what surprised me was um, one of the jobs of one of the inspectors was basically full-time talking to the press so it's not actually a bad shout that you know what if the government have to do it because you know any incident that's affecting more than you know we we had one where um there was poison released into a flat and so there was the whole area was closed off and 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 literally the, the inspector spent all day talking to the press about it uh so it's you know fair point why the companies are, have customers there's lots of customers out there why shouldn't they be uh forced to actually communicate with us about our data yeah i mean that's so that's kind of my point i feel like it's a public safety thing they're holding personally identifiable information around things like you know financial agreements or you know people's addresses or where they keep their car and who knows what else right so they're holding that information they're the custodians of it and they're basically saying that they've come under attack and that attack has been effective i think they have a, a both a civic and a financial responsibility to those people to tell them the action that they could take in order to help to protect their data and i think that 
it's too easy for corporations to say, oh, well, this is only to do with our manufacturing facility or this is only to do with our internal systems or whatever. And actually, those internal systems house that personally identifiable information. So it'd be very interesting to see how this plays out if it turns out that data has been um, you know, either compromised or breached. I think the only way you could um, enforce that would be th through something like GDPR, where as part of the fine, uh, they take into account uh, how you handle the crisis and how you communicate with users, which I think Brilliant. would be... Yeah, Live tweeting. Get that in there. I'm going to the <laughs> European the court. court. The court. <laughs> oh, wait, we left. They could change that um, that notification requirement, you know, to you've been... Because the, the, to me, that there's too much weight on, you know, you know that data has been breached. If you've been compromised in any way, like your infrastructure has been taken down or you're not functioning because you've come un because you've come under attack we now know in in 2020 there is a high likelihood that data has been compromised i i do happen to have done a little bit of research on the Shut network and information up. systems directive <laughs> wow and yeah <laughs> Well, this legally mandates that if you're an operator of essential services, that you notify the competent authority within probably 72 hours of a data breach. Now, what's really interesting about this is who the competent authority is, a very UK-specific thing, of course, uh, who's the competent authorities. If it's... And you might argue that because it's a cybersecurity thing, it should be the National Cybersecurity Centre. But wait, it isn't. And so you... Because a data breach or a breach or an incident could be caused by physical security uh, issues, not necessarily cybersecurity. And so what uh, in UK law they've set is that uh, the competent authority is the regulator. So if it's affecting you in um, water, the water sector, then it's, you're going to off what or uh, off gem if it's in uh, whatever, whichever one that is. Is that electricity? Gas? energy um that whole policy you could argue those uh, uh regulators could be the ones that say public service announcement um your water provider has just notified us as a data breach there is um, a possibility that customer information has been um compromised um like watch this space for more information it's not it's sort of an indication of how high on the priority list that personally identifiable information act that data actually is to that to that company without wishing to cast dispersions it just seems like Money. it's not that important well we've seen any fines so we've seen any yeah loads tons tons some whoppers yeah has anybody ever actually paid them they're they all they're all busy appealing them well the big appealing, one yeah because ba <laughs> ba was like how much was it the ba one it was a lot 230 it was, it million? Was a lot, yeah, um a lot. and so they are obviously you know now everyone's in the process of appealing it and the other thing that people that organizations are looking to do is try and find ways to be able to cover themselves insurance. through cyber insurance so we're now just mm -hmm. kind of building an industry in cyber insurance that's not actually helping to solve the problem it's a little bit like saying oh because we have car insurance we can all just drive around crashing into everyone it's not doesn't really work that way <laughs> but just back on the nids thing i mean this is a relatively nerdy point but the uh, directive actually also relatively says you have... i think i think you'll let you us, i think we'll be the judge of that uh you... <laughs> Look, take... They shoot the player. Like it's not my policy. I didn't write it. The um, but it also says that you have to demonstrate preparedness, which is really interesting because otherwise you can you can't just be like, oh look, got hacked again. Seventy two. Told you. Like 
It's fine. Like it's not fine. No. And also like, demonstrate you have to have done something to prepare. Demonstration of preparedness is such a woolly like that doesn't mean anything. Not really. Like even if you take out an insurance policy, is the insure how closely is the insurance company examining your actual preparedness? Like how all they care about is things oh, like are you oh, are you up to date? That's what they're looking at most of all. Like systems that are designed to protect you, are they kept up to date? That's basically the the rationale. Okay, next we're going to talk about um, hack for hire, which I have to be honest, is not really um, terminology that I'd heard uh, until this week. Um, but a company, a non-profit um, called Citizen Lab and also uh, Semantic Norton have been doing some research into a, a group that it looks like um, are operating out of, uh, out of India. And essentially they were making uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars through offering their uh, services to uh to essentially uh hack for uh for profit um the report itself is uh, is pretty in depth and it's also pretty interesting um but i wanted to start by uh, um asking about how uh, asking about hack for hire as a concept like i said i haven't really heard about it um but is it a is it a thing is this a thing like is this a widespread thing we've seen i mean on the dark web there's there's hundreds of sites going oh, hire me for hacking services and it gives you a big list of oh i can get information on your your husband i can get information on your wife i can you know hack into whatever you want um usually written uh in not the best english so you don't you, you don't know if you trust where they say oh, i i operate in america and england um but yeah it's uh it's definitely there i don't i don't know who would it's not i haven't seen any like um like the ebays of of the dark web where people can give a review of of people um so don't know how realistic they you are actually going to get them to hire but i'm sure there are services out there for you know corporate espionage i'm a hundred percent certain there are services i mean this is i mean if you've got you've got private if you go even back to a non-cyber world, you can hire people to spy on your partner, right? Or you can hire, you can buy like spying apps that you can install on their phone so you can track their location. Like this is this is like a natural escalation of that, where a company that's a competitor of mine, I contract in somebody else that you know with no trace to me, and they they do like either shut them down using some ransomware attack or uh, steal the ip or or do both like that this i i mean i'm quite fascinated by this happening because it's quite i mean it's really interesting and the targets here are, are like slightly dodgy because it it's not like uh people being hacked to hire the obvious uh targets it's it's big uh, ev- like uh, allegedly big organizations like Exxon uh, targeting protesters and uh, that that's really that's really dodgy yeah it's quite interesting that, so it's called Dark Basin and they're linked to this company called Beltrox and um, the head of Beltrox has actually had a um, indictment for, from the DOJ uh, about hack for hire. Uh, so it's really interesting to see how this pans out. And it is, I mean, they have a list of, um, and there's the um, Exxon New is a kind of campaign against Exxon that's been attacked. There's been uh, Greenpeace, Climate Investigation Centre. So, you know, not typically um, companies that 
would hackers would go after because what does Greenpeace or, or Exxon new have other than uh, to attack a very specific big company like yeah. ExxonMobil. The, but um, there's a we have to just this is where we have to tread a little carefully because the um, the Citizen Lab uh, report uh, the their investigative path goes very much down that route, um, uh, and they refer to the um, to the group as Dark Basin. But then the uh, Semantic uh, Research, uh, who call the group uh, Mercenary Amanda. Again, there's no time. Guys, guys, there's no time to get into the naming conventions. Um, I would, uh, you know, I would love to rant. You know, I'd love to rant about it. Um, But these uh, these two organisations actually worked together on this report and still couldn't use the same naming convention for the group. So there you go. That's just that. There you go. I've said it. Um, But what what they were much more interested in was looking more broadly at the nature of the targets and also where those targets existed geographically um which in and of itself gives you an interesting read on the on the kind of nature of the work that the group were clearly being given to clearly being given to do because 55 percent of the target organizations were in the united states with the next highest being the uk nine percent and a third of the targeted organizations were financial institutions 14% 14% law firms, 9% non-profit. So it, it's, when you start looking at the, the investigations next to one another, you're like, oh, Citizen Labs have got a bit of an angle that they've kind of you know, explored because that's what they had information around. It's the classic attribution trap. It's like because I've got information about the non-profits, that's where that's the report that we're going to produce. Um, whereas actually, if you look at the bigger numbers, which is what Semantic have, um, the kind of clustering of the uh, you know of the targets um it's a much broader view what is interesting is the is the us and the financial services um i think it's kind of it's kind of interesting um also you would never usually see like political consulting firms or news organizations making up that um uh, that diagram because usually the amount of them is so small so it's really interesting that there's enough targeted news organizations and political consulting firms as well as politicians and non-profits um to kind of m- make it to that diagram it does suggest very targeted behavior and yeah and, and the target behavior even more so like some of the uh they created kind of fake news on exxon mobile uh as well so the, the they'd created this news to I assume to entice uh, those groups to click on it. So, you know, that's very, very targeted. It, you know, it's not like, oh, we put out some ransomware and loads of the companies got affected and some of them might have been, you know, the Exxon, anti-Exxon ones or whatever. It seems very targeted to, towards those um, those companies. I'll tell you what, the uh, examples of the phishing emails that they were sending are pretty damn good. I mean, and these are these are examples. I'm just looking here; like they're from 2017. So these are, I mean, these would get me. You mean the you mean the Dropbox and yeah. the the Google Alert? Yeah, the Dropbox, yeah. the Google News. They're so good. I mean, this is another level from the kind of Nigerian prince scam, which I fall yeah, for uh, every time, obviously. Which every time. <laughs> uh, I'm no, rich. I'm them... rich. <laughs> oh. uh, this report's been 
has been in the process for a couple of years now they've been putting this together and very little of this has made it into the mainstream before then like we haven't been speaking about these pieces in cybersecurity news like these samples haven't been like discovered and openly reported so this attacker they take their time they build up their infrastructure they're so targeted with their attacks like so bespoke with all of their infrastructure they're targeting to make sure that it doesn't just become public knowledge to make sure they don't leak out it's that level of sophistication that's what uh, this is apt that's what apt yeah i was thinking that it's definitely apt i mean it's probably better than apt like these stories you would have expected from a u.s government doing espionage against like um a, like a, a bad a bad actor like north korea china russia whatever like this is the same level of quality the same level of um uh yeah the same level of advanced and um, persistence um uh but applied by allegedly u.s corporations against people they that don't like them i want to see what they build them but look at this, like it's how, 2017. How much that this is, can you imagine what they were doing now? <laughs> this is two years ago. That's, this is before Immersive Labs was even born. They, they're they doing these scams that are like top tier. It goes all the way back to 2015. Like some of the earliest stuff, like they track back all the way back to 2015. That's a span of five years for for this report only to be coming out. Now, I've, I know Citizen Labs, like they take their time putting this stuff together. Uh, to make sure that they're as accurate as they can. They, they do their fair amount of due diligence. Um, so, yeah, for these things not to have leaked before now, not for it to be public knowledge, like, this is good stuff. And I think also they're happy to step away from um, pushing the pushing the bound, kind of pushing the boundaries of attribution too far. They are ready to say, we know that this is uh, most likely uh, a company in India being hired by someone else, um, but we're not going to make judgments about who we who we think that is because we don't have enough information to be able to to be able to do that um what the, um back to the uh, indian thing just just some some points of interest out of the research that i just that i just thought were cool um the first is that they got um a semantic managed to uncover um php uh code from one of the phishing servers um and it was a part of it that was responsible for logging victim visits basically uh and the time zone in that php was set to uh calcutta and india standard time which is obviously only used in that in that country um and then they also looked they did telemetry of um successfully blocked phishing emails from the group and they charted that those um those blocked phishing attacks only happened across the Indian workday. Um, and also Citizen Labs were able to identify that activity didn't happen during public holidays and festivals in India, which I just think is like that. It To me, that's intelligence gathering, and that's super interesting. Well, that's, yeah, standard yeah. attribution. Yeah. Technique. I think they call it, um, you know, patterns of life or, or something like that. It is, and this is just the beginning. So, like, right at the top of the report, they say this report's going to be followed by additional reports providing a more comprehensive Ooh. overview of targets and technical indicators. So there's more to come, and, like, I, for one, will be keeping an eye on it. Uh, I've got a funny thing about Citizen Oh, yeah, Lab you were going to tell yeah. your Didn't funny you have a story Citizen about story? Citizen Lab. Come on, Kev, tell us your story. About five years ago... Um, I was doing a lot of research with remote access Trojans and um, the guys at Citizen Lab actually helped me for some, um, asked me for some help uh, analyzing some samples. 
and it was fun. Like it was some malware, it was real malware, so they pinged it over to me. I think it was Cybergate. Um, so I did the static analysis. I was building decoders uh, at the time, uh, pinged all my research off to them. They said, thank you very much. And then they said, do you want the attribution in the report? And I was just transitioning out of military life into civilian life. I was like, yes, absolutely, because uh, that's good on CVs. You know, I've done published work and all that kind of stuff. So they did. Um, and then the report came out. Um, and the, this was on Packrat. Uh, so I'm reading through it and I can see the bits that I've done and my name, Kevin Breen, thanks for helping reverse engineer the, the malware. And then I got to the bit where the dynamic analysis had been done, uh, where the guys are actually running the samples in virtual machines and seeing how it interacts in, in real time. And this is the uh, cartels at the time. So some fairly dangerous people. Uh, they recognized that the analysts were doing this. They jumped in and started issuing death threats uh, against the analysts and their families. And I'm like, at this point, I was like, I, I wish I'd known that before I said, yes, please, I'd like my name published in full on the end of that report. Kev, you, you're um, always putting yourself in harm's way with these with these cyber types. Let me give you a couple of the, uh, the examples. Um, we're going to analyze your brain with a bullet and your family too. Uh, take care of your family. Uh, you like playing the spy where you shouldn't. You know it has a cost, your life. Uh, so these are all the things wow. that the actual attackers are now sending like in real time uh, to these uh, analysts. These, uh, this, was a, yeah, this was South American um, targeting aye, aye, aye. Uh, people. So, yeah, it's like I feel for the analysts. So regular listeners to the podcast will know that um, we're, we're big fans of when vulnerabilities get given their own names um, and their own websites and ideally a logo. That's when that's when we really know that logos. In the fact, if the logo is not any good, we don't even care about the vulnerability. I mean, why? Why would you? No. Doesn't even know. But one that one that has cropped <laughs> up uh, this week with its own website is Call Stranger um, CVE twenty twenty one two six nine five. But they have also given a justification as to why they have created a website. And Kev is now going to explain to us why Call Stranger think they need a website. Uh, yeah, so we'll jump straight into that rather than the technical stuff. That Call Stranger, it's a UPMP thing. Um, so UPMP, uh, Universal Plug and Play, it's all about your routers and gateway devices being able to like automatically port forward and uh, recognize services and things of like that um this is a vulnerability in upmp uh and you they say there's lots of things uh, in reality the thing that this is likely only going to get used for is ddos attacks with iot devices uh, being exposed um but they say there are and i'm just going to check uh, billions of upmp devices uh, on local networks and millions of them on the internet uh, exposed to this um so the reason they said that it needed its own name and its own website is that each one of those vendors each one of those brands uh, is going to need its own cve to track it uh, on their own system uh, therefore call stranger is a a nice way of you being able to see all the news about this uh, regardless of the vendor this call stranger thing Right, I've got two points yes. on this. Firstly, I've always thought that UPnP was just a really bad idea anyway. I don't have any justification <laughs> for that. It just feels super dodgy. Like, that I plug it in and it just does stuff. I don't like stuff I feel that like does I, stuff automatically. 
I feel like I used to use this for something for my Xbox back in the day. This was a thing that you used to have to have your firewall open to on your Xbox. Right, Xbox One are vulnerable to this. And Windows, they are. Uh, yeah. yeah, you pay, it's it's automatic port forwarding, like based on right. services and things that's like that. Dodgy. So it, it's 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 not great, um, and that's kind of why it has um, its own specs. So they treat it like the Bluetooth protocol. So there's a foundation that runs it because it is so ubiquitous, because it's everywhere. You want some kind of oversight to it. Uh, there have been some critical UPnP vulnerabilities in the past. Um, this one isn't. Uh, like I said, the the biggest threat from this is going to be all those IoT botnets uh, are going to be able to do a uh, a use these devices as part of a large amplified DOS attack uh, or DDoS. Um, so let me just get this straight, that, Kev. Right. So I've got a UPnP device on my network. It's automatically configured my router to allow its ports to be internet facing, which is brilliant didn't want that and now <laughs> because there's a vulnerability in it that's never going to get patched a load of botnet herders are going to be using my television to do a ddos against britney spears or whatever yes pretty much this is um, a bad thing i think that well so so kev kev's attitude was a little bit like well it's not actually that it's not that bad like there's there's not that much that could happen given that mostly they're going to connect to like iot devices that don't necessarily have anything useful on them which i get i'm i'm way more concerned about the way that this process works they i think um oh kev you and i were talking about this recently what's the average time for for like disclosure of vulnerability to publishing and patching uh, it's if you take a look at across everything, uh, it's like about eight days, I think, from a vulnerability being disclosed to a patch being out. And we know from things like SaltStack and from Citrix uh, that once those patches are out, you've essentially got the zero day out. So um, that's as good as public disclosure of a POC. Now, this is obviously very different because you've got so many vendors and different different devices that there's not it's not the patching thing is not as is obviously not as straightforward i understand that but once the thing was disclosed and a cve had been assigned which happened on i think according to nist on the 5th of may so we're already five months down the line this thing appeared first of all in december and so what i'm thinking is Okay, so all the information that was available then got published, including NIST, you know, having done the analysis and saying this is the CVSS. No, NIST have done no analysis of it, but surely they could have done six months ago and then everyone would have known. I'm just confused about why this process is sometimes so clunky. That because there's no formal process, there's no recognised process of doing this kind of responsible disclosure. Uh, we as a community have got a lot better at this over the last couple of years, but that's just the last couple of years. Um, there's no standards, and especially with, we know that a large proportion of this is IoT-based devices, and there's no legislation, there's no uh, standardization across IoT devices to the point uh, that governments are now starting to uh, create these programs. Um, I read something uh, recently about uh, the UK government uh, offering 
they want somebody to come up with a kite mark uh, so you can kite mark IoT devices to bring in some standardizations. Uh, somebody created a label uh, that they want to be able to stick on all IoT devices that shows you uh, what kind of data privacy um, issues it has, like how often is it updated uh, and that kind of thing. So standardization uh, is missing. Which leads us neatly on to talking about um, uh, exploits in uh, SMB or vulnerabilities in, in SMB. Um, and we've seen a few, uh, sorry, a couple that have been uh, about for a, a month or so. One new one, which is uh, SM Bleed. I think that's the new one, isn't it, Kev? Uh, yes. So uh, Patch Tuesday yesterday, yesterday, yesterday. Um, and one of the bigger ones in there was uh, SM Bleed, um, which again, like you said, is in the RDP protocol. Uh, SMB Ghost, uh, we saw, uh, I think that was March's patch, both got great um, logos which was a as well. awesome logos. Appreciate that. Uh, they both have great logos. Uh, before that was Blue Keep, uh, like RDP exploits seem to be the trend at the moment. Eternal Darkness. That was good. I thought that was a good brand for me. <laughs> it's a good brand. Is that a, is that a good name? These um, are boring, aren't they? SMB Ghost. Move on. Patch was they out are, in March. Uh, SMB Ghost. Kev, come on, people. Patch. <laughs> uh, S- SMB Ghost was out in March. Um, that's the interesting one. That was, I think, the CVSS score, and that was like a perfect 10. Wow. Um, and what makes that more interesting at the moment is because a couple of days ago, uh, they actually released the new POC. So previously we had local privilege escalation. Uh, now we've got full remote code execution. That's SMB Ghost. Interesting from a uh, a both offensive and a defensive uh, position. SM Bleed came out with some fanfare, um, and it's it's a bit meh, um, if I'm honest. Oh, so it's hype, um, not it's hacked. not remote. Uh, it's definitely hype, not hack. Um, I mean, I was hoping, I was hoping I'd never have to think about that again. <laughs> uh, definitely needs patching, but in this one, the, there's a element of social uh, engineering. Uh, you need to get the attacker to connect to you in order to exploit this, rather than the way around. I refuse to end another podcast by saying everyone should just patch their stuff. It's boring. Anyway, you all know it, so it doesn't matter. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your audio content. And if you want to know more about Immersive Labs, you can find us at ImmersiveLabs.com or follow us on Twitter at ImmersiveLabsUK. Until next time, from all of us, goodbye.